0: Okay, we are continuing on from the book of Joshua. This is uh, just a fabulous, fabulous book here that we've been going through in concert with our theme, Church on the Move. And uh, as you turn there in your scriptures, whether it's digital copy or paper, I'm gonna open up with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the life of Joshua. We thank you, God, that it's a life well-lived. We see, Father, how you called him to be strong and courageous. You called him, Father God, to be a leader of a nation. You gave him the privilege of leading the people of God into the promised land. And Father, there's so many lessons for us as a church right here in this city that we want to be a church on the move. We want to be a nation that represents you. And so, God, as we look into these lessons, would you illumine our minds and cause us, Father God, to just draw more deeply to you. We thank you now for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 7, picking up the thread of the story in Joshua chapter 6. The nation has just uh, conquered the city of Jericho. Uh, As we saw, this was a a fabulous victory that was given by the Lord, a miraculous victory. Uh, It wasn't your normal normal military conquest. God specifically told them to send out the priest, to send out the ark, to circle the city for six days, then on the seventh day to do that seven times. And as everyone shouted at the moment that Joshua said, now the walls came tumbling down. And we're talking about just not tiny little walls, not rickety wood fences. We're talking walls that were 25 feet high, 20 feet thick. So this was just a mighty, mighty move of God. So Israel is excited. They've taken their first city. They're moving now into the interior of the land. And the next city that they're gonna take is a city called AI. Not artificial intelligence, but AI. That's the actual word in the Hebrew. And so Joshua says, okay, send out a couple spies check out what the situation is. They come back, they report to Joshua, hey, the city's not that big, it's not that protected, we don't need to send everyone in, just two or 3,000 people. Joshua gives a thumbs up, says, that's great. Sends the troops over there, thinking that they're going to have another victory, only to be defeated by the troops at Ai. And so, in fact, about 36 of the men got killed. They come back, and Joshua is absolutely distressed by what went on. The scripture describes to us kind of this, this moment of grief that he went through. Scripture says that Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face, both he and the elders of Israel. And so we have this moment where we're peeking behind the leadership curtain and we see Joshua's private feelings. And he's praying and he's crying out to God. He says, Lord, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? Why have you allowed them to destroy us if only we'd been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan? This is quite a confession. Joshua has just done some miraculous things, and now he's in a moment of just being ripped apart by what happened. And he has this great sense of failure. Like, we are now exposed to all these people. We've got two million people that are camped in the plains of the Jordan, and we just lost. And so he's wanting to backtrack. And so God comes to him very interestingly, and rather than comforting his heart, God says to him in verse 10, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? So God actually goes on to explain why the troops lost the battle at Ai. He says there's sin in the camp. Something has happened in which there was a person by the name of Achan, and he has violated the ban. So what was the ban? In chapter 6, When Joshua told the people, when the walls fall down and you go in, all the things that you see there are going to be put into the Lord's treasury. You are not to take any of it for yourself. But God says to Joshua, there is a man now who has taken something from the band. And as a result, I have caused the army to flee before the people of Ai. So God says, I'm going to call out this person. I'm going to show the whole community who this person was. And there is this roll call that goes on. So Joshua calls this national meeting. He says, we're going to call out those who have violated the ban. And one by one, he begins to break down who the guilty party is. So he calls out the tribe of Judah. And then out of the tribe of Judah, he calls out another family. Out of that family, he calls a household. And finally, it comes down to this man by the name of Achan. Now put yourself in the place of Achan. You know you're the guilty party. Now you're going to be exposed before the entire nation. And God, one by one, puts the squeeze. First, the tribe that you're part of, then the family, and then you're actually called out. So he's standing before Joshua, the general. And Joshua says to him, what is it that you have done, my son? Implore, give glory to God and give praise to him. Tell me now what it is you've done. And so Achan, on the spot, confessed and says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he confesses what he did. So judgment now is placed upon Achan. And we read this verse here in 24 through 26. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and his daughters, his cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all they had to the valley of Achor, which means trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. So that's the title of my sermon this morning. I want to focus on the anger of God. In the ESV version, it says burning anger. Or if you study the Hebrew version, it says his blazing anger. So we're not talking about the Lord being upset just a little bit. We're talking full-on, blazing, fierce anger. And I know this subject might be uncomfortable for many of us, the idea of God being so exercised. It'll challenge our mind. But it's absolutely important that we study this and wrestle with this. As followers of Jesus and those who honor the word, part of our duty is to embrace the whole counsel of God the whole story of God, the whole picture of the Bible. Not to say, only I only like this part of the Bible. I don't want that part of the Bible. We can't choose what we like and dismiss what we don't. Obviously, we like and we prefer the kindness of God and not his wrath. We prefer his patience and not his judgment. What Jesus did on the cross to save us and the promise of eternal life. That's the mercy of God that we love to dwell on. But there's more to God than just mercy. And mercy is is a powerful and big subject. And as I've preached before, there's there's no mercy without justice. Justice is the precursor to mercy. If you don't have justice, there's no such thing as mercy. Mercy without justice is recklessness and cowardliness. And we see this happening in our society all the time. Mercy, which is not merited, or mercy in which justice has not been incorporated. Oh, it's okay. Go on. Do your thing. Yeah, what you did was bad, but it's all good. And so we don't call out the justice piece, and that's a form of recklessness, and that's a form of cowardliness. Mercy without justice is not love. It's a kind of lawlessness. Just do whatever you want, however you want, in the name of love. Everything now is in the name of love. We're redefining what love is according to our human terms. Anything goes. But mercy implies righteousness, holiness, standards, which the human flesh recoils at because our nature is sinful. Our Adamic nature says, no, we don't want heaven. We don't want the glory of God. We want earthly things. We want our own pleasure. We want to satisfy our own appetites. Don't give me the glory of heaven. I want my own fleshly things. And so we recoil at God's standards. We don't want to be constrained or controlled by anyone. We like to be our own boss. And more and more man is exerting his sovereignty. More and more man is saying, I call the shots, not you. We see this happening right here in our own city, in our own country. It's amazing what's happening before our eyes. And I hope that you're not being numbed by what it is or anesthetized by the situation that you can't perceive what's going on. It's important for us as the people of God to discern these things and to understand and to be able to divide between mercy and justice. And in this case, what we're talking about this morning, the anger of God. Being made in the image of God, we were created for purity and wholeness and righteousness. There's a popular notion out there that The God of the Old Testament is an angry God. But the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is no such dichotomy. There is no such division. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They are one and the same. The God of the Old Testament is as loving as the God of the New Testament. God didn't change his mind and say, oops, I guess anger doesn't work. Better, better figure out a better way. That anger bit, boy, that wasn't such a good idea. I guess I made a mistake. What people don't realize is when they read the Bible, this is a document that documents man for 4,000 years. Did you know that? But what happens is we have a record where God inserts himself and has to bring course corrections. He has to speak to his people. Here's how you get back on track. Here's the mistakes that you've made. And so we have this concentrated compilation of, of the accounts where God comes to speak in a loving way to bring his people back on track. But we read it, and because it's condensed, we think, my goodness, look at time and time again. You read the prophets, the major ones, the minor ones. They're always saying something negative to the people of God. But what people don't understand is God's patience has been displayed for hundreds and thousands of years before the discipline came. So if you were to look at a timeline of 4,000 years, it'd just be filled with patience, kindness, understanding, forbearance, and then there's these little marks on the timeline where God had to send his messengers to speak truth and justice. But we look at it and go, oh my goodness, he's such an angry God. But the God of the Old Testament is as tender and gentle as people see Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1 makes this stunning statement. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Exact representation. People say, I don't know what God looks like. I don't know who He is. You just look at Jesus and you know exactly what God is. Is God a God that gets angry? Yes. But is He an angry God? No. This is important to understand because many of us have been hurt by angry people. In many cases, deeply. That's their disposition, their character, their default, that's their personality, that's how they live and control people. In control situations. It's just anger, anger, anger. And their anger can do terrible damage. No one likes to live around angry people. And the effects can be long-lasting, requiring a lot of time to heal. These are not just people that occasionally get angry. They are angry by disposition. And so it's easy to project that experience onto God and think he's just an angry God. But God is actually the opposite. He is a God that gets angry when needed, but he is not an angry God. That distinction is really important. An angry God is a God that just has a temper, hair-trigger temper. Ever been around someone with a hair-trigger temper? You're just always walking on eggshells. You have no idea what's going to happen. If something's going to be wrong, and just bang, they go off. An angry God is a God that is just looking forward to breaking out on someone. He's cruel and unfair and impatient, but that's not our God. When Moses was leading the people and there was a point in which God said I'm going to withdraw my glory you guys go on ahead Moses was like please don't let that happen the only thing that will distinguish us between us and all the other nations is that you are with us God please show me your glory that was a big ask it was a huge ask but God said to Moses if I'm going to show you your glory I'm just going to show you a part of it because if I showed you my full glory, you would not be able to withstand it. I'm going to walk behind you, but you're not going to see my face. So God bids him up to the mountain, puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God walks by, and the voice of God says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Not the Lord God angry and frustrated. Not the Lord God Thin skinned, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. And here's the important point. When did Moses get this revelation? In the Old Testament. This has been God's character all along. You know, I'm glad that I have a God that gets angry with injustice and cruelty and rebellion in my life so that he will discipline me and reprove me and correct me. That's a sign of a true father. Son of a true father isn't just go do whatever you want. Just be wild. Follow after all your fleshly passions. Go be a prodigal son. Don't worry, it's all good. I'm glad that I don't have a god that winks at my sin. Excuses my excuses or looks past my unrighteous behavior. I do want I do not want to be a slave to sin one of the greatest blessings that you will ever experience that you cannot put a price tag on is when you are free from sin the feeling of being completely unchained from the power of our own addictions our own flesh is priceless i don't want to just follow after my every single appetite i don't want to be a slave to my own sin and god comes in and he does he doesn't look past my unrighteous behavior I'm so glad that I have a God that loves me enough to put his foot down and say no to my wrong way of thinking, living, and acting. You know, when God gets angry, he doesn't get angry like we do. We get angry for selfish reasons. When we don't get promoted, our affections aren't returned, That girlfriend didn't answer my text, the meal we ordered didn't turn out right, my preferences didn't get accommodated, my pride was hurt. James 1 says the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. So this is why we have a hard time thinking about the anger of man because we equate it with the unrighteousness of man, and there's so much. There's an epidemic of anger. There's a culture of anger out there, and it's completely unrighteous, and it doesn't represent God. But it offends our mind when we think that, oh, God gets angry because we equate it with that, and nothing could be further from the truth. So the scripture is given to us and helps us to see a clear, crystal clear picture of how God's anger operates and that it's a good thing. When God gets angry, it's not in a capricious way. He doesn't get angry because he's having a bad day or he's in a bad mood. He is always perfectly in control of his emotions and actions. That's such a powerful statement because the the thing about being around angry people is you just don't know what's going to happen. They could just get out of control. But God's perfectly centered, perfectly in control of his emotions. He never loses it. He never gets angry for the wrong reasons. He never acts out of hurt. This is one of the main reasons why we get angry all the time. But God never acts out of hurt. Can you imagine if God acted out of hurt? There are billions and billions of times that God has been hurt, ignored, scorned, reviled, mocked by humanity, And never once has God acted out of hurt. When Jesus was standing for Pontius Pilate, he was beaten by the troops, the crown of thorns placed on his head, all the things that went on in his life, the travesty of travesties of justice. The Bible says he was quiet as a lamb, never acted out of hurt. Can you imagine what the world would look like if God had no sense of justice? He'd never get angry. It's all good. Whatever will be, will be. I'm just super chill God. If that were the God of the universe, we would be living in mass chaos. How would you like it if a judge presiding over your case was laissez-faire about your case, about the injustice that you were experiencing? Injustice that you were experiencing? What if that judge didn't really care if you got a fair trial? Hey, it's whatever. Didn't care if the decision rendered was good or bad you'd go insane. So how do we look at God's fierce anger in this story? Foundationally, we need to realize that the anger of God is right and good and justified whether we get it or not. God does not need to justify himself. God does does not need to explain himself to us. He is holy and pure. We know his actions are right. So he doesn't have to do anything to explain it to us. But as best as we can, we strive to understand, and God gives us a record like Joshua chapter 7 so that we can begin to peek in and to to get our arms around it. So I want to draw three insights from this chapter that will help us understand a little bit more this holy, fierce anger. First point here is that covenant blessing Covenantal blessing requires covenantal level obedience. Covenantal blessing requires covenantal level obedience. In seven eleven, chapter seven, not the store. It turns it turned out. It, chapter seven, verse eleven. <laughs> Israel has sinned, and God has stated what the issue is at hand. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. And what was the violation? They took some of the devoted things, they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possession. I was thinking about what Uncle Ben said to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. God had chosen the Israelites out of all the nations of the earth to be his. There would be no other nation on earth whereby God would show his extraordinary power and miracles. Is there any other Bible out there? Is there any other record out there about God doing what he did for a nation except for Israel? No other nation in all of history. God specifically said, I'm going to show myself through you, and there's going to be amazing blessings. I'm going to pour out plagues upon Egypt. I'm going to part the Red Sea. I'm going to give you manna in the desert, water from a rock. Sandals that don't wear out for 40 years. Cloud by day, fire by night, parting of the Jordan. This is covenantal level blessing. No other nation gets this privilege. And God reserved it just for the Jews. And by the way, he reserves it just for us now. With great power comes great responsibility. God expected and commanded the Israelites to act in concert with his character so they could be a witness for him. There is a special nation that's coming over the Jordan River. And God wanted to make sure that the nations understood what this was all about. So as they were coming into their promised land, and just as God prophesied to Abraham 400 years earlier, all the more now, the Jewish people were expected to model what a covenant people would look like. So the expectation that was placed on the Jews to obey was commensurate with the outsized blessing that they were getting. And this principle establishes the proportionality of God's justice. If you steal a pack of gum from the dollar store, the punishment is proportionate to that. If you steal a car from your neighbor, you will be punished in measure to that if you kill someone your punishment is the harshest because proportionally you have committed the greatest damage so the punishment is correlated to the size of the incident so right off the bat when we read this in chapter 7 verse 11 we see the stakes that were at hand this was not a small issue a covenant matter was at hand god was not acting disproportionate to the crime breaking out over some little thing, but in concert with the weight of the situation. So this framing helps us to dial in properly to catch the seriousness of what was going on. It wasn't just some trifling crime. Second thing that we see from chapter seven is that all of Israel understood the terms of their covenant responsibilities at Jericho. This was not just understood by the soldiers or the priests. This was understood by everyone, the general populace. Two million people, including every man, woman, and child, because they were all involved in taking the city after the walls fell down. No one was to take anything under the ban. And Achan himself confessed to the sin. We read here in verse 20, Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, the great suit makers of Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They were hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now note that Achan was not one of the soldiers. In other words, the terms of what God said was clear to everyone in the nation, not just the military. In verse 18, the scripture says, see, did I put this up? In verse 18 of chapter 6, Joshua had made it clear to them to keep themselves from taking anything under the ban. So God did not punish Achan for something he didn't know. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear about that one. Why are, why are you persecuting me? Why are you making me an example? I, I didn't hear about this. Achan couldn't say that because the instructions were to the entire nation. Everyone heard, including Achan's children. So that, that's the other thing we look in the text and go, man, Lord, you also stoned his sons and his daughters? What's up with that? As a side note, the value of the robe, the silver and gold that Aiken stolen was worth a lot of money. In today's value, the gold bar he stole was worth around $60,000. The silver bar was around $3,000. And the nice Armani jacket he took was about $2,000. In total, he snatched about $65,000 worth of stuff. Now, back then, that was a huge amount of money. I did not back calculate for inflation, but it was probably enough to retire on. Man, this is great. Just sneak it off. No one will know. But what Achan did and what his kids did was bad. Now, the text doesn't state that the kids actually did it, but they may have helped dad carry the goods away or helped them bury the goods under their tent. We don't know if they actually did that, but we do know that they were stoned as well, and so they were guilty as well. They were of age... They knew enough that what they did was wrong. So God did not condemn someone that was in the dark. God was justified in having them stoned. But we still go, really? Was God actually justified stoning them? Why not just put them in prison for 10 years? Why did they have to be stoned and burned? What was so offensive about what they did? This leads us to our third point. Achan's act of stealing was tantamount to looting. So here's the point of God's outrage. That's the actual word I'm quoting from verse 15. God was outraged. God's glory would not be spent on looting. God did not spend his supernatural might on collapsing these incredibly high, strong walls just so the Israelites could loot the city. This would make God look like a robber and a bandit to the Canaanites, and that would have been a misrepresentation of God. Looting is a form of rape. You take advantage of someone when they're defenseless, like breaking into stores and stealing goods during a riot, when the owners aren't there to defend their property. It's sickening. Looting is a spirit of lawlessness and strongly condemned in Obadiah and Habakkuk. Looting is stealing. It's a form of idolatry which if God's glory was spent on this, would make God look like that he was an idolater of money. I'm just defeating these cities. I'm just going to crush them so that my people can go in and just loot whatever they want. So this is the God of the Jews. This is the God of heaven and earth. But God is not after anyone's money. He doesn't need a dime from your bank account. We talk about giving and tithing in this church. It has nothing to do with God wanting your money. It has everything to do with your heart. Is everything surrendered unto God? He doesn't need it. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. And he would have nothing to do with this kind of behavior as exhibited by Achan. The point of God's glory in collapsing the walls was to make a statement to the Canaanites as the Israelites entered the land. The God of heaven and earth was moving through this people in an unprecedented fashion. Everything that the inhabitants had heard about, this God was true the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that provided for 2 million people in the desert with no farms, no grocery stores, no Uber Eats, no DoorDash, nothing. How are you going to provide for that many people? And yet he did. And that people now is coming into our land. And he parted the Jordan. Everything that they heard about this God was true. But God would do it only once. Of the 31 cities that Israel would conquer, only Jericho would be defeated by the walls falling down. God would use his glory judiciously and strategically. Jericho's conquest was not a pattern for the other cities. It was a statement conquest, a solo event to set the tone. And thus God would not allow his glory to be misrepresented during this special dispensation. Ironically, God's rage against Achan spoke of God's care for the Canaanites. Yes, his people would conquer them, but they would do it in a dignified way, not a lawless way. That's why Achan and his possessions and his children had to be stoned and burned. And we get a further insight here from the back half of verse 18. Do not covet the things under the ban. Don't don't take some of those things under the ban and make the camp If you do that, you will make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. So when you slow down and you think about what God is saying, he's saying, listen, if one person breaks the ban, the entire nation will be affected. And Paul echoed this teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, one part suffers, every part suffers. That's why we continue to just encourage us in our understanding that church is a body ministry, If you're not involved, if you're not contributing, we all kind of hurt. We're actually walking under our potential. We need every single person. Christianity is not a spectator sport. And so Paul says, if one part suffers, everyone suffers. This is how families work. If my kids are hurting, we all hurt. All the siblings, mom and dad. I mentioned some of my best friends are going through cancer right now. One of them is a senior pastor. Everyone in their church is like shook. That's how spiritual families walk together. So you have this whole nation that's going into the promised land, and God says, if one of these people commit and violate the ban, the entire nation is cursed. Whoa. Cursed by who? By Satan? By the Canaanites? So here's the shocking answer Cursed by God. Curse in the sense of to discipline the entire nation, not to create a voodoo doll and curse it. God had to discipline the entire nation because he didn't want the Canaanites to think that he approved of their hoarding behavior. So the way that he would discipline them was to let them lose in battle at Ai, a humiliating battle. If God let the Israelites continue to conquer city after city after city and did not judge their behavior, the Israelites would just think, oh, we can get away with these variances. But then over time, it becomes a cancer. It becomes a habit. It becomes a lifestyle. It becomes something you just pass on to the next generation. There's a permissive spirit that enters in, and it goes from bad to worse. God said, I'm going to have none of this. God's glory would not be spent on coveting behavior. Now, note what happens in the rest of the book of Joshua. The behavior of Achan never happens again. There was no more looting spirit ever to be seen with the 31 other cities that were taken. So, what does the anger of God do? It keeps us from sinning and it keeps us holy. Keeps us from sinning and it keeps us holy. Oh, Pastor Rich, holiness is such an outdated idea. Really? This is what we're contending for in our culture. This is one of the most politically incorrect things to say. You know what? So what? We have to stand up for the gospel. If we, the people of God, don't stand up for the truth of God, if we don't represent who God is, who will? Is there any more witness left in the earth? This is why God had to prune and discipline Israel because if they did not embrace who God was, who would? Every single one of us every day, our conversations at work, listening in the media, watching TV, there's a clash of culture. Kingdom culture versus the culture of this world. It's not going to be easy. Storm clouds are brewing. There are things happening that's going to require some fortitude and courage. We're going to be spit upon. We're going to be hated. Jesus prophesied that to us. Are you ready? We have a peace and a joy that God will give us that cannot be shaken. But when we see the fruit of what came out of this chapter, that there was no more coveting behavior, it brings us to a a key point of this message, that the anger of God is meant to prevent us from sinning. Its punitive quality serves as a divine deterrent a red line, to protect us from our stupidity, to protect us from ourselves, to keep us from our wickedness and turn us back to God. The intensity of God's anger corresponds to the danger of our sin. Like if my little kid is going to walk off the steps of the deck, I say, Matt, watch out. But if he gets near, let's say, a hot stove, I can say, Matt, watch out. But if he's going to walk across the street and a car could just take him out, I'm going to go, Matt! It's proportionate to the intensity of the danger. Hey, Matt, Matt, please come back. Please come back, little little guy. No, that's not going to do it. It's too late. Therefore, we trust in God's anger because the strength of God's anger is proportionate to the protection he wants to give us. And that is, is a statement of his love. God's anger is about his blazing love. Thus the anger of God, properly understood, actually bonds us to him, not separates us from him. It's crazy. I want to share a story of God's anger in my life and end with this story. It's about a friend of mine named Drew. I can use his name because he knows the story. He was my best man at Mimi's and Mai's wedding, and he's still one of my best friends to this day. We met at university where we were roommates, and our friendship grew deep and and quick because uh, we both came to school as new Christians. We were very hungry for the Lord, and during my sophomore year when we roomed together, we just did everything together, best of pals, went to Bible study, went to the same church, went to the same conferences, went to meals together all the time. But little did I know that God would use Drew to expose some of the worst character flaws in my life. We were complete opposites. I was shy, he was extroverted. I was reserved Asian, he was a zany and crazy Greek. And I shared this story in the first service just to illustrate his zaniness. He, he was this adventurous guy, loved to travel, was always up for doing something spontaneous, go off the beaten path. The crazier it was, the better it was. And one time he was in Denver, Colorado. <clears throat> this will date me when I say this, but President Carter was the leader of the United States. And he said to himself, I'm going to try to pierce his Secret Service detail, see how far I can get. So he found out the hotel that President Carter was staying in and, of course, the president was staying in the top floor, and he said, I'm going to work my way up the floors and see how close I can get to them. And, by golly, he got past three teams of Secret Service people before he got to the top floor. He had used the fire escapes, and he, was <laughs> he talked about walking into these floors and acting like dumb. He goes, oh, no, I'm, I'm so sorry. The key was given to me and this and that. And so the Secret said, okay, no worries. You know, this area is cordoned off, but you have to go. So he just kept working his way up the stairwell pretending like he had this key to a room, and finally got to the top floor, he said he opened this door, and this house of a guy was standing in the door, he's like, hey, what's up? You know, had the earpiece, and Drew tried to sweet-talk him. No dice. But I'm thinking, Drew, how could you do that? How could you do something so just, I don't even know how to describe it, but that's the kind of personality that he had. I was punctual. He was perpetually late if you listen to this, I'm sorry for exposing you. He literally did not get a single term paper in on time in four years. Four years. We went to a very rigorous school, and not once did he get his paper in on time. I remember one time he got an A- on his paper, and he was so mad. I go, what are you mad about? You got that in two weeks late. But I was supposed to get an A. I was from a humble family. He was from a blue blood family. His family lived next to a U.S. senator. He went to a prep school, a military academy, strict, honor-based, love of country. The way that they trained him in high school, I remember the first week we were in our dorm rooms together, and he would make his bed, I'd walk in, it was just perfect. And the way they taught him was that the, the covers on the bed had to be so taut that if you flipped a coin onto it, it would bounce. That was the test and he was refined, and he would correct my English, and I was like offended that he would do that. Like, is this a racist thing, or are you actually just correcting my English, you know, because you're so good with your grammar? I was decisive, and he took forever to make a decision. I would get so frustrated with his procrastination, his dithering, his dawdling. I would just get boiling mad. We'd go to restaurants. He'd take him 10 minutes to order an omelet. Oh my goodness well, what kind of onions are, you know, and what kind of green peppers, and are they diced or, you know, are these locally sourced? And I go, just order the omelet. We're college kids. We can eat anything. Why couldn't he get his act together? But here's the thing. He's one of the most caring people I know and is one of the kindest hearts of anyone I know. But I was frustrated with him, impatient with him, disgusted with him. I'd roll my eyes. I'd sigh deeply, and I just generally wanted to throttle him but never once did he return my disdain and anger with retaliation. He never acted toward me like I acted towards him. Then as the school year ended, we were about to leave for summer, we both knelt down to pray for one another, and as I began praying to my utter horror, God opened my eyes to see what a jerk I was to him, how I had treated him like S-H-I-T, And I felt God's blazing anger on me. Did you see how you treated him? That was despicable. I just saw how I had become a monster. And I literally felt God's heat on my neck. And I felt his rod in his hand. God had come to the defense of Drew. He'd come to the defense of my roommate. At that moment, I broke down and I sobbed like a baby. I was absolutely gutted. When God opens your eyes to see your true condition, you never forget it. It's partly the mercy of God that he doesn't open our eyes fully. So Drew saw this, and I was sobbing, and turned to him, and I told him what God showed me, and I apologized profusely for how terrible I was to him, asked him to forgive me. And as I was talking to him, I said, Drew, and as these words came out of my mouth, it had like the force of prophesying to myself. I said, Drew, I will never treat another person in my life the way I've treated you this year because that was just abhorrent. You are forever my reminder that I will never be that ugly person again. The wrath of God broke me and humiliated me like no one could do. And that moment changed me forever. I'm glad to report by the grace of God, no person has ever had to experience what Drew had to go through with me. The fierce anger of God made me a better person, and I'm forever grateful. If he just tapped me on the shoulder and said, Rich, you need to just clean up your behavior a little bit, I would not have gotten the message. I would have gone on my way, and I probably would have had another two or three Drews in my life before I would finally get it. But God's intensity and his fierceness on me changed me in that moment. I don't know where I'd be as a person, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, had God not broke me as a young man. I shudder to think of all the destruction I would have inflicted. Instead, God saved me from my sin and others that would have been left in my trail of wreckage. That's God's love. The anger of man tears us down, but the anger of God sets us free and imparts something that no man can give. God brings a cleansing blow to the soul that scours us from sin. We need the anger of God in our lives. No one else will do it. God is courageous enough to discipline you. God is strong enough to call you out. We need that. We want to be a church on the move, like Israel did in this chapter. We need God's anger because it's part of his fullness. It's part of who he is. We don't say we just want a part of who God is. We want everything of who God is. We don't want to miss out. Amen? Father, we come before you right now. Lord, we read stories like this, and it just challenges our souls. And yet, as we reflect more deeply, Lord, truth begins to emerge. And that truth sets us free. That truth takes us to a deeper place. That truth renews our mind. That truth helps us to come closer to the burning bush that you are. So that we can see that you are indeed holy. And that your holiness and your anger, and yes, your fierce anger is good. And while it may scare us and it doesn't make sense to our minds, yet, Lord, we know that you are the God of love and that this comes out of love, that your anger is motivated out of that desire to help us grow, to free us from bondage, and to bring us into the liberty that you have for us. This morning, maybe you have been someone that has been hurt by deep anger. Maybe you yourself have been an angry person then you need to look deeply into the face of God and say, Lord, make me like you so that I don't walk in unrighteous anger. Father, we invite the holiness of God into our city. We invite the righteousness of God into our church. We invite the full spectrum of who you are, God, to be in this place. We thank you now, God. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.